Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to a new edition of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. On this week's episode, I'm, I'm super excited about this one. Our guest today is someone I had the pleasure of meeting. I was actually uh, someone I'd looked up to for a long time, and I was in California on a family trip and wanted him to sign a book I had and called his office and he wasn't available. So I was going to actually leave my name and number and I was going to drop the book off. And about 10 minutes later, his assistant called me back and said, he would like you to come to his house so he could sign your book before you leave town. And I was kind of blown away. So I went over to his house and actually sat on his front porch with him for about an hour, hour and a half and chatted and he signed my book. And I was just so impressed. And so I'm very excited for our guest today. And I'd like to welcome to the show, Ed Parker Jr. Thank you very much for coming on the show, sir. Thank you for asking. So Now, some of the questions, you know, my other interviews I've done, one of the first questions I ask is, how did you get exposed to martial arts? Well, obviously, I think that one's kind of a given (laughs) on on who your dad is. But obviously, the question I'd like to ask, you know, know, your your father was Ed Parker, the man who created American Kempo, someone I've looked up to my whole life uh, and actually moved to California just to study that style uh, back in the 90s. But what I'd like to know is, did you have a choice? Was it something that at a certain age, he just started training? you or it was something that being around it as a kid you wanted to do it well I was raised among I mean your, your social circle when you're young is other martial arts families and so my dad was friends with other martial artists who had children as well and he saw that some of them forced their kids to do martial arts and he didn't want to take that route so he would give us an opportunity to go to the studio and train and, it, it, you know, just see if it would take any traction. And if it did, keep doing it. If it didn't, then he tried again a year or two later. And so it was kind of like that process the whole time until I was in my 20s. And that's when I that's when I wanted to know uh, martial arts because it wasn't a kiddie thing to me. And it wasn't I, there was no martial arts um, kids programs when I was a youth. Right. So. I mean, I, I love these, these guys that are my friends now, but at the time, you know, they're my dad's students and they weren't good with children. <laughs> they were horrible. Kids programs absolutely were a nightmare because they, they, um, they were structured around maneuvers. So it's all foot maneuvers. So it's like step drags, drag steps. There's four different variables. And, but they wouldn't give you the four different variables. They just do an hour of drag steps. I don't care what kid on the planet <laughs> you're gonna get bored with an hour of drag steps. Oh yeah. And so it was it was it was no wonder why I didn't take any traction with us because you know the the, the the instructors are also bitter. They're all like, oh great, I gotta teach the old man's kids. I'm a babysitter, and that's kind of how they they walked into it. That kind of bitter attitude. So it, it, it go figure that there was no real traction in my youth about it. So was there other kids training at the time or was it pretty much just you? 
Um, no, my two, I had two of my sisters in the class with me, okay. but there wasn't other kids in the program or anything like that. Most of the kids that came in were started around 16 and I was five, six, you know, seven, eight, all those years that I would go in there and stuff. And it was a lot more calisthenics, a lot of jumping jack and things like that, which was really difficult for me as a child because jumping jacks are not the exercise to give kids who have just had a gastrous, you know, uh, lunch. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you know, and when you're a kid, my dad taught me that a, a fart was a, a joke that never lost its punchline. <laughs> so we just laughed. You know, we thought it was funny. It was the way our house was. And, and it was never, you know, it was never thought of, you know, some people, you know, culturally look at it as like, oh, how disgusting. But a Polynesian, they looked at it like, that's funny. <laughs> that's <laughs> oh, we laughed. Nice. And so we get in trouble a lot. Or I know I got trouble a lot because some of the instructors would, would pass gas when they're doing jumping jacks. I couldn't control myself. I thought it was funny. And so, you know, all right, 10 more knuckle push-ups. So, all right, but I'm still going to laugh. <laughs> I'll do whatever you want me to do, except for stop laughing. That's never going to happen. That's great. So, so now you had mentioned, you know, martial arts families, obviously, you know, some of the company your dad kept and some of the people I'm, I'm assuming you probably grew up knowing, you know, like Chuck Norris's kids and Bruce Lee's kids. And I mean, at the time and, and even their parents, did you realize, you know, when you were younger, how important these figures were? Or they were just friends of your dad's. I don't think anybody recognizes that when it's your perspective, your, your perspective is always what you like, like to me, it was like, um, uh, there's a group of people that, that ran a like a kid's show called Checkers and Pogo in Honolulu. And that was my hero as a kid. I wanted to meet Checkers and Pogo. You, you don't, you know, when you're five years old, you don't go, oh, this is Bruce Lee who's going to be real famous in about three or four years. <laughs> right. You, you don't think that way. You just go, oh, that's my dad's friend. And they're not there to entertain you. They're not there to play with you. They're there to interact with your parents. And so, you know, you're just basically an ottoman that they step over on their way to do their business. And so there, there, there wasn't a lot of that. There was no family gathering between the Norrises and myself. Chuck was, was I mean, his real name is Carlos. Yep. But, um, you know, he had a rival school. So it wasn't, you know, if it was, if it was within the same kind of context of what my dad did, then we were, became more friends. I was, the, there was a mutual respect with the Norrises and my dad, stuff like that. But it was, you know, he was a Korean art. We were Chinese-rooted uh, art. And back in those days, it was very divided. It was very, the Japanese stuck with the Japanese stylus, the Koreans stuck with the Korean, the Chinese stuck with the Chinese. There, you know, nowadays it's all mix and match, and there's just kind of a mutual respect and admiration between the arts, and there's a, more of a buffet line of people picking and choosing elements out of the cultural differences. But at the time, no. Uh-uh. You were a traitor if you if you study another art, you know, if you're Japanese, you're Japanese and that was it. But that also happened to do with the, uh, the time period where it was territorially broken down because right. the United States had um, been exposed to like judo, stuff like that. But then all of a sudden when the combat art started hitting, it, it became more of a business model. And it was like this. The Koreans had the East Coast. The Chinese had the West Coast. And so the Japanese were all about dominating you know middle america okay. and it was it was very cut and dry and it was very territorial and and there was a time when it was like you know you open up a karate school 
and there was another karate school in the town, students would go down, challenge them to a fight, and whoever got their their you know their butt handed to them left town. Wow. And and that was it. And that's the way it was back in the days. And but uh, yeah, I mean, in, in regards to the family, there was a family called the Castros, uh, Ralph Castro. Oh, and yes. We hung out with their family quite a bit. They had a number of daughters and a number of sons, or two sons. And um, there was a, a son around my age named Boss and and uh, an older son named Robbie. And I was really close to them. And as kids, we spent a lot of time, you know, interacting with them and doing things together with them. And now when I first heard about you, obviously you were, well, at least in, in my experience, that you were known more for your art and, and the drawings and the paintings and stuff like that. When did that, was that something that sparked at a very young age with you? And obviously you, you managed to take that and blend that within the martial arts world wonderfully. But it, you know, was that something that you start? did you start drawing at a very young age? I don't think any kid that's born with famous parent wants to be that because you're always going to be compared to the sequel, the bad sequel or whatever, and you lose your identity. And for me, I mean, I, I share his name. I share a lot of his uh, attributes, but, you know, I think we all want to carve our own little niche in the world, but you didn't go a lot of distance being in his world because um, being raised in a Polynesian home, family demands loyalty from the family business. It's the family business. We all work it, period. And so that's kind of how our family was, but you didn't have to participate on a, on a martial arts level but you had to participate on um, what your talent was. Whatever your talent was, you worked the family business with your talent. A mom's talent was editing and bookkeeping. So that was what she did for the family business. Mine was typesetting, illustration, book publishing. And, and so I went into that. But my original focus from birth, I grew up wanting to be an artist. That's that's what made me happy. It's it's. I think we all start off as artists. I really honestly believe that because people ask me that question all the time. I'm like, every single one of us had a crayon. Every single one of us had had a box of crayons, and that's what you're encouraged to do in kindergarten. You know, it's like a couple of lessons and a lot of drawing. And so, what happened with me was I liked the response I got for drawings because back, I don't know, back in 1964, 65, that's when the Snoopy, you know, uh, Charles Schultz cartoons would come out. Yes. And, and there was a lot of focus on, on, um, you know, the, the red Baron, right. And the red Baron would, would go against Snoopy who was in the stop with camel stop with camel was a, uh, British biplane and the red Baron had a tri-wing plane, from the, from the German army. And so if you look at it from a graphic perspective, it was a very easy thing to draw. It was just a triangle with a little round part in the back and a couple of little ovals for the wings. And you never did it from perspective. You just did it from the side. And so when kids would draw that, it was a really easy to draw, you know, stop with camels or a red baron airplane from the side. And then when you drew, you drew it as if it was an animation. So as you're drawing it and you're, drawing two planes you draw one plane and uh, opposed from another one and then you draw the dotted line as if those are machine gun blasts and when you did it you and you would make the noises when you drew <laughs> and i remember that everybody was doing it so you just do it because you know you just kind of follow what people are doing but i realized that when you started to draw the drawings you'd make different ones like you know and the next picture you drew you have them here and so you draw curly black lines for the smoke as it's going down to the ground. And then you drew a whole new piece of paper 
and you have it where the plane is stuck in the ground. Well, I noticed all the other kids would draw draw their planes with the nose stuck in the ground and, you know, up 45-degree angle. And I was thinking, well, if you hit the ground, you crack in half. <laughs> so I cracked mine in half, and nobody had done that. And so they're all like, oh, my gosh, that's so ingenious to make it cracked in half. And I was, I liked that, that kudo, you know, I was like, really? Oh. And I'm, you know, here I'm 61 years old. I still have that same feeling of drawing something that somebody didn't think of. That's it cool. gives you that kudo. It gives you that good feeling of that you thought of something that somebody didn't think of. And it makes it fun because then you're an originator of the concept or, or you're seeing something for, through a pair of eyes that somebody didn't entertain. And my whole career has been based on that. You know, when I decided to do artwork for the martial arts community, it was the same thing. It was like nobody was doing it. I did, uh, I don't know, there's like hundreds of people now that are mimicking the style I do. And I think it's hysterical because I know why I did it. And we, most people think that's what you do. Well, if you're going to draw martial arts, you have to do it this way. And it's not. It's just the way I did it because sometimes I'm cheap and I don't want to spend that kind of money on paint. So I, I started off doing these martial arts portraits with like this blue cloud behind the, the competitor or the, you know, the, the martial artist. Mm -hmm. And I, I must have drawn maybe 1,500 portraits with this blue cloud behind. I, then all of a sudden I started traveling, doing seminars and stuff. I see all these people. I'm like, well, I know my artwork and that's not my artwork, but why do they have a cloud? I see a red cloud or an orange cloud, or all these different kind of clouds or, or a blue cloud. And I, I start laughing and I'm like, I just cheap. I didn't want to paint a whole background that's blue because then that's a whole lot more money on blue paint. And the reason why I did a dark background is because, you know, I draw on white paper. And then when you fill in with uh, another ink or whatever, it just costs more money to coat the whole paper. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I had to have a dark background is I had a theater background, too. I was very interested in making movies and doing theater and stuff. And I just know that the way they lit the, the main character is they do a strong backlight. In concerts, we see that the stronger light is not the one that's on the performer. It's the one that's on the back of the performer. Right. And so it makes him stand out from the, uh, like if you're doing a, a Broadway show or something like that, if you really want to make that main singer stand out, you, you have a really strong backlight. When it does, it, it creates like this glow on the back of the person. And if you look, um, my heroes growing up were artists that did motion picture artwork. There was an artist by the name of Drew Struzan. That, to me, he was the god of art, small g. <laughs> he, was, he was absolutely, I mesmerized at his artwork. I think I was in high school when I first started seeing his artwork come out. He did um, album covers at the beginning. Like he did, uh, there was a Black Sabbath, I can't remember the name of it. And it was like on one part, it's like if the guy had died and all these demons are taking his body to hell type of thing. And then on the back of it is like all these angels are taking him to heaven. And I'm like, man, this artwork is amazing. And he did like Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare. And so he did a number of these music uh, album covers at the time. And then he got introduced to Hollywood motion pictures. And he wound up doing like some of the Star Wars posters, wow. some of the Indiana Jones posters. And he wound up being the most sought after artist by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And so he was the guy I always try to pattern my artwork after. And so a lot of my artwork style was influenced by him. There's other artists like uh, Paul Talley. He used to do a lot of uh, illustrations for the U.S. Postal Service. Um, there was other artists 
course, you know, when you're talking about it, you forget. Right. Oh, all right. That that would be my dog, Nani. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she has only one volume, 11. <laughs> That's her 11. I don't know why she, she's kind of a nut. So she's bothered by falling snow because <laughs> we live in a very remote town. There's, there's like 120 people in our town, and oh, there wow. might be a whopping five people we meet a year. Well, they, they've been filming. They, they just wrapped up the filming of, if anybody watches, the uh, Discovery Channel, the Gold Rush show. Okay. They were filming uh, a crew of uh, a guy named um, Fred Lewis. Okay. Fred Lewis is, a, is this guy. He's a, a military guy that started getting into gold mining or whatever, and he had his own claim up here and so he's been clean he's been uh working a claim right up the same creek that we live on we live on a creek or, or a little river and and that river goes all the way up to where his claim is so i guess we're getting his tailings into our creek <laughs> anyway so back to the artwork the artwork is it was kind of like that kind of a situation where i i was really i admired motion picture artwork and the reason why is that if you ever look at, at motion picture artwork, or at least there was a time period it was like that, is that you're trying to sell a movie with one picture. It's not a book. It's not a comic book. It's one poster. And that one poster is supposed to do the job of getting you interested in seeing the movie. You've got this high-tech movie with all these special effects, but you only have one way of getting in there, and that's a poster. And so I wanted to do that same concept when I did martial arts art. I wanted to capture whoever I painted so that you'd be curious about them. You'd say, I don't know what it is, but I want to know who this person is. I don't want them to get caught up with my artwork. I want them to get caught up with the curiosity of why was this person painted and who is this person that was painted and give you a curiosity of that. So I've always painted with that kind of thought theme in, in mind. How do I get my audience to do that? And for years, I kind of lose track of all the artwork I do because I don't really keep track of what I've done because I'm always worried about what I've got to do. And so, but every now and then I look back and see my career has been quite extensive. And I've done hundreds of books, hundreds of book covers, hundreds of magazine covers, if not thousands, t-shirt designs. I, I did a series of uh, martial arts certificates that get, those. those are the ones that get pretty much mock the most and so I, I i just when you think about a martial arts certificate or the way i was looking at martial arts certificates you, you got to break it down in the, in the most simplistic terms the name of the person the text saying you know how great this person is and what journey they had to go through or what official this or that is, is part of the text the date the rank they get and what association is it from and then at the bottom, who's endorsing this rank? And so it's a real boring thing if you just see, you know, international, you know, tempo, you know, death tempo association. You just see that at the top. And then you see the person's name. And then you see their rank, you know, oh, wow, he's a first degree black belt. At the bottom, you see a bunch of scribbles. But it, it, there's nothing to a certificate. It, it looks really boring. And the problem is, is that, when you look at other professional careers, they have a tendency to seek out the talent of other people to help their business. Martial artists always look to themselves. Either the instructor would say, not only can I teach karate, not only can I run a business, not only can I do uh, advertising and everything else, but I can also do artwork. And you, 
you can only wear so many hats. And and most of the time their their skill set was really lacking in any of these areas. And I went to college for this. So to me, I I, I had a skill set in there. And so when I did it, I did it from a very professional, very disciplined, you know, uh field. And and a lot of times I'd see people and they, you know, maybe they got a certificate from one of their instructors who had a certificate back in the forties as just a name and, and you know, just a couple of, you know, lines on there it is a registered black belt under this group and, and that's it. And so I would watch that, but then what they do is they take a Xerox of these older certificates, wipe out the title, put their own title in there. Wow. And so it'd like to be a Xerox of a Xerox. And and any copy of a copy would look really bad. And yeah. um my whole thing was was that if you were to walk into a you know, like say for instance you're a CPA by day and a martial artist by night. And you're proud of your martial arts certificate, so you put it on a wall. But the last thing you want to do is have your martial arts certificate give a poor presentation. For instance, if you look on the wall, the last thing a martial artist wants to hear is somebody from your non-martial arts world go, Oh, so you're in the karate, are you? <laughs> and that's exactly the type of tone you get when it looks cheesy, when it yep. looks you know, like a, a, a poor presentation. You get that sarcastic. If anybody that's not in the industry does not get the passion, does not get the dedication, does not get the you know the the commitment that you put into getting a black belt. And so when you have a non martial artist look at it, they mock it because it's been it's been a very mockable industry because of because of Hollywood or whatever because of Ninja Turtles or whatever. People get exposed to it from different angles, and the last thing the martial arts want is to have somebody you know greet their passion with their reverence, and it happens a lot. And I saw it all the time with people going, "Hey, you're in the karate, are you? Show me something. Break something. Going, <laughs> yeah, yeah." And then you go, look, I'm not a monkey. I don't just perform on command. And so my goal was to draw or paint something that would make, you know, this is exactly the, my thought process when doing it. Number one, I wanted to hear the audience say, you know, the guy's name is Bob Jones. Wow, Bob, what did you do to earn this? And then there's, it commands a moment of reverence for, for the passion they put into it. And the next thing is, is this your black belt certificate? Oh, yes, it is. Well, what organization gave this to you? And oh, well, it's this organization. And and if the third or fourth thing in there was who is the artist, I did my job right. Nice. If the first thing that came out was who is the artist, I didn't do my job right. It's supposed to be about the individual, you know. And so I that created I don't know, shoot, I must have done a half a million certificates in my career. And um, you know, there's there's been a number of certificates that are out there that mimic my style of, of, of certificates after all this time, you know, for whatever reason, you know, my rates are, are, are professional rates and they'll go and they'll, you know, Oh, can you do artwork to one of their, you know, college student students? <laughs> and then I'll go, oh, yeah, yeah. Cause I want to save money. And so it might go that route or I'll just go that route of, you know, people like to do it in their own way or, you know, with their own skill set or whatever. But I know how much time I put into it. I know how much skill set I have. And so I'll see people that mimic it and I can tell, you know, I'm like, boy, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> but, but you can tell the, the, how, who influenced them, which was my style. So then and were you doing individual way, ones or were you like doing, giving them a template so they could continue to use it or did they have to buy each one individually like that? Yeah, I, I would make templates okay. uh, or I'd work for large organizations and stuff. But uh, the martial arts industry is, 
is is not regulated by any group in particular because right. you know you i mean how many I guess this is a good way of putting it. I was raised in a town called Pasadena, California, and we had 47 martial arts schools in the phone book and two McDonald's. (laughs) So it just shows you the volume. It's the largest grassroots movement in the United States. But all it takes is getting upset with your instructor. And now you can go off on your own, create a new international organization. (laughs) There's no one's going to stop you. And so, it's gotten out of hand because of that. I mean, everybody, I mean, it even happened in my dad's industry. It's like he died and, and I've met people that are like 10 degrees now, but they, they, they weren't even a thought. They weren't even a white belt when my dad was around. And that was 30 years ago. Wow. He passed away. And, and now there's, there's people out there that, you know, it's like they're third generation from being one of my dad's first generation people. And, in martial arts, they don't have any um, policing organization. There's no way to police it. So, you know, it's like you have to have a license to cut hair, but anybody can teach your kids how to kill. Yeah, that's sad. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's, it's just the way it works, you know. And uh, yeah, I've been involved in court cases where people have done, you know, I mean, the courts don't know any difference, you know, and they're like, is, is, is this move legal? I'm like, I'm sorry that you have to ask me if it's legal or not. That's pedophilia. Okay. That's pedophilia. You don't need a martial artist to come in your courtroom and tell you that's pedophilia. That's pedophilia. Don't have anybody saying, Oh, that's, Oh, we, we use this technique to help take out muscular strain of kids. No, that's a pedophile. Throw them in jail. And I've been in court cases where we've had to throw people in jail because people kind of played off that mysticism of the martial arts. But it's just wackadoo people out there. I wish we had more way of regulating that, but we don't. I mean, you know, because of the internet and cell phones, and everything else, that a lot of that stuff's been calmed down since that. True. That has grown. Yeah, I always, I, I always tell the story when I when I lived in California, there was a school. I, I wish I could remember the person's name, but they were running a martial arts school, and I remember a few months after I got there, I read the story. They had been shut down, or not shut down. They basically disappeared. But what what people found out was this person had no training at all, and had ordered a train at home VHS collection for martial arts, and literally was watching the video before class and going out and teaching it. <laughs> And took people for money for like a year before people figured it out and he disappeared with all their money. <laughs> I, I knew hundreds of those situations. Wow. Hundreds. I mean, in all fairness, my dad kind of started that, that process because him being one of the first people to teach martial arts in the United States, when he opened up this karate school in Pasadena, he put an ad in the paper and he said, martial arts instructor needed, no experience necessary. Oh, wow. And so three of his top black belts and... I'll bring up a name that you're very familiar with. One of them was named Frank Trejo. Mm-hmm. He, he answered the ad. Another person that answered the ad was a guy named Larry Tatum. Wow. Really? And so these they came into the karate school, and they were given one lesson above the lesson they were to teach beginners. I mean, how else are you going to get karate instructors when there's nobody in the town that knew it? I suppose. That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so that's how it happened, you know. But unfortunately, and they were, they turned out to be some of the most phenomenal martial arts instructors on the planet. Larry Tatum being, you know, internationally known and, and um, well disciplined, well practiced. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's an international celebrity in, in what he's accomplished within his martial arts career. Um, Frank Trevor passed away, but mm-hmm. 
you know, he was an international uh, respected uh, martial arts master as well. So there was a time when at least it was policed in the right level. Right. But nowadays, all you have to do is just, you know, like I said, you have to have a license to cut hair, but anybody can teach you how to punch and kick, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I don't know if there ever could be an, inter- I mean, cause obviously with so many different styles and so many organizations, you'll, we'll never have something pleasing that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. No, there which was a time when there were, there were people were looking at it oh. and, but that time is coming gone. There's no way you can do it now. It's kind of like putting the toothpaste back in the toothpaste bottle. Right. That, that's never going to So then what, uh, what level did you get to, um, did you actually get your black belt from your dad or did you, uh, when, when did you? No, okay. no, I never did. I, did get a black belt under um, one of my dad's instru- one of my dad's students, Ron Chappelle. Oh, okay. And and I also trained with a number of other people because the way I looked at it was I knew I was a unique student and a unique individual, and I didn't want anybody to claim me. I just I didn't like that. Okay. It was like my journey, my my path, and I also picked the people who I could. I'm an intellect and I like people that intellectually stimulate me. And Ron Chappelle is a very smart man and he kept me mentally stimulated. And so I really enjoyed training with him. But I also trained with uh, with a guy named Hot Planet. Mm -hmm. And he stimulated my mind too. I just, I really liked working out with him and I trained with Frank Trejo. And so I always try to keep my instructors in check by always maintaining three different instructors so nobody could claim me as their boy. Because I looked at it as I was my dad's boy. I'm not there boy yep so but i was also friends with all these people so it wasn't like you know i didn't play the the typical protocol that most people did you know it was that what does the dog lick his butt because he can you know <laughs> what, what why do i do what i do because i could and so that, that's why i did what i did because i knew you know i had a unique situation and people who don't take advantage of their own unique situation are, are um foolish in my opinion I just came from, but the whole reason why I did it, I I trained under my dad for a number of years, but my dad didn't teach me the way he taught his students. He said, I'm not here to teach you how to get built. I'm here to teach you how to think. And that's what he taught me. And so all my classes, every lesson that I ever got was from him. Like my first class, when he started teaching me the system, he, he taught which most people know in the American Kempo system is delayed sword. But my lesson in delayed sword was three times a week for six months doing delayed sword. Wow. But when I did delayed sword for six months, I was taught all the variables. You can do it this way. 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 You can do it this way or this way or this way or this way. <laughs> and so he would teach me, well, this, if you want to be more pinpoint accurate, you can, you can uh, knock a person out with the first move. And so he would go into that. Or he says, now nah, you can do a, a lock grab takedown instead of, you know, uh, a strike, break, dislocate. And so he was constantly, and I don't think I was, I don't think I was even as student as I was a laboratory rat, you know? Okay. I think it was his way of looking at how can he evolve his own system and he needed a bunch of students that he could toy with his. I, I think everybody does that because I know my dad thought that teaching yellow belts when he was an advanced black belt master was a death sentence. It's the last thing he wanted to do was go back and teach a beginner course. And so for him, he reached a level of professorship or mastery that required an, an audience to be at a certain intellect for them to comprehend what he was into. And so he really went in a very unusual route. And so I did live a lot more of a Miyagi lifestyle. We didn't train in 
martial arts uniforms, be chained in, you know, you know, our regular clothes or whatever. I had a, a bunch of my friends we grew up with and they're all part of the training too. And it was never formal. It was, it was literally, you know, if we went for two hours, we go for two hours. If we went for three hours, we went for three hours. If you wanted to teach us five days a week, you'd do it. Otherwise you'd be gone. And we only get one lesson out of him a week, or sometimes we'd have to wait a week to get a lesson. But it was it was a very non-regimented way of doing it. I mean, what he required for people who were in the system was completely a different world than I knew. And after he died, I'm like, wow, I wish I got what you guys got. And they always looked at it like, well, we don't take you serious, Junior, because you never really had lessons with your dad. And then I started listening to the way they talked about me, and I'm like, wow, you don't know much, do you? You know, and I, I got a little irritated when I was, you know, after my dad died because, you know, we live in a world where everybody wants to be validated. And I, I noticed that about my dad. When he started getting black belts that were already a black belt from somebody else, they didn't come to my dad for learning. They came to my dad for validation. Right. They never came to him saying, Mr. Parker, can you teach me how to do it your way? They always wanted to say, Mr. Parker, I've been doing this for five years. Please tell me I'm doing it right. And my dad was a really smart man in the way he taught people. And he would sit there and he'd watch somebody come in the door and he said, Mr. Parker, please tell me how you do five swords. He goes, you tell me how you do five swords. <laughs> then he would say, if you're going to do five swords that way, let me make some adjustments so that you can be the most effective and efficient doing it that way. So then he would make an adjustment based upon rules and principles of motion and movement. And then they'd walk off. And the first thing they'd say was, Mr. Parker told me this is the way I'm supposed to do it. Or Mr. Parker taught me or validated. He said, my way is the right way. He never said that. Never once. And because of that fish story, that's how things got out of hand after he died. Right. Everybody wanted to be validated and right and being the next Ed Parker and whatever. And it was a joke because after my dad died, I think it was the very first week, you know, I think we just put my dad in the ground maybe a day or two. And I got my first phone call, one of hundreds. And my the first phone call was, now I'm a smart man. I, I, I grew up around a very intelligent man, my dad, and, and he raised me how to think. And, I, and I'm hearing this guy on the phone and I'm like, what are you calling me for? You know, you, you had your, your lips planted on my dad's butt for years. So what do you want me for? You know, all of a sudden, what? Because, you know, my dad's gone. I'm the cheese. And I'm, but I'm, I'm like going, I didn't take on that role. I didn't I didn't claim, you know, to be the heir of, of the Kempo, um, you know, legacy or dynasty or whatever. And so what would happen was the people call me up. This one guy called me up. I, I don't like mentioning names. It's, right. it's more the victim than the individual. But there's this guy who called me up on the phone. He goes, hi, hi, Edmund. My, my, my name is Edmund, but I don't like anybody calling me Ed. You call me Ed. My friends can call me Ed or Edmund. My family can only call me Edmund. But if you don't know me, you better not call me Ed because you'll make me upset. Because it's, like, it's an intimate name, you know? So all of a sudden he comes up, hi, Edmund. I'm thinking, uh, Ed, <laughs> Ed to you. He's okay, Edmund. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> what? And so he kept me on the phone. Well, you know, I used to be one of the, the top contenders of the International Crowd Championships, and I was the best. I was, you know, as if I needed to be convinced of anything, you know. Okay, you're, you're the best. Okay, go on, go on, go on. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, look, I've got an art project on my table. I'm drawing. I, what do you want? You know, I mean, really, what do you want? But I don't, I'm not rude. 
So you just kind of be quiet and you listen and ramble. And this guy was rambling and, and, you know, how's the wife? How's the kids? How's the weather? How's the, can you get to the point? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be rude, but what do you want? You know, well, you know, I am the best in the system and everything else and blah, 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 blah. blah. I'm like, get to the point. My dad used to charge for his time. What, my time is worth nothing to you? Come on, get to the point. Here it is, like 30 minutes into the phone call. I learned how to cut the phone call conversations down. You know, you're ignorant at the beginning of not knowing how to handle it. So you just, you, you put up with it. And so finally, after 30 minutes, he gets to the point. He goes, well, I was wondering if, if you could promote me. <laughs> wow. And I, and I knew that if I told him no, that he would keep me on the phone for another half hour, telling me all the reasons why he, he was justified in having me giving him his rank. I wasn't a black belt at the time. So, and I learned something. I'm a really quick thinker. And I was thinking, you know, if a man is prepared with a, if their self-defense thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It's like he's going to defend his position no matter what. So he's a self-defense guy. So he's already thought of every variable of no, I'm going to give him and how he's going to counter every no I give him. So I was thinking, huh, you know, the way I can get this guy off the phone is give this guy more yes than he can handle. <laughs> so, so I said, sure. I'll give you, I'll, I'll promote you under two conditions, but you have to agree to the conditions before I tell you the conditions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I will do whatever you ask me to. All right. Number one, you have to tell everybody who gave you the rank. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You're the one who gives me the rank. And I said, number two, you have to take the rank I give you. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I said, I'll make you 10th degree. No, no, you can't. I said, no, 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 no. You, you are, we had an agreement. You said that you would take the rank I gave you. I said, what are you, a six now? That means you want to be a seven. And I said, I'm going to be kept on the phone a year from now for another half hour about how my wife and kids and the weather is before you ask your, your eighth and your ninth and then your tenth. I said, if you're already the best, my dad's dead. Let's just cut the crap and go to the top, man. The position's open. My dad's gone. You're the big cheese. You are now a 10. No, no, I'm not a 10. I don't. Never heard back from that guy again. <laughs> That's great. My life has been that my whole life long. It's been wow. nothing but those kind of characters, you know, knocking on my door or coming, you know, from various angles or whatever. And you get pretty good at it because you realize, you know, really people don't really want to learn. Right. They just believe they've already arrived and they all they want to do is be validated. It's like, I'm so great. Please tell me that I'm not wrong. Because if you tell me I'm wrong, I'm done with you. <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> I'll play a stupid game. But at the beginning, you know, it became irritating. It became goofy because I had, my dad was a businessman, too. And so I used to have a lot of people come knock on my door and they say, Mr. Parker Jr. I said, this, this, no, my junior's not my last name. Okay, so don't, <laughs> please, don't, Mr. Parker Jr. I said, you know, no junior likes to be called junior. No junior. It's just to separate. You know, my name is Ed Parker. Dad's name is Ed Parker. I have a son whose name is Ed Parker. You know, nobody likes to be added the little, you know, subtitle. And so please don't call me Mr. Parker Jr., but people would always do it. And the way I would look at them is that, number one, before we have a conversation, I'm not a bank. So don't come knocking on my door thinking that I'm going to invest in your great idea. And number two, if you can tell me how you pre-thought how this was going to be of mutual benefit to you and me, 
then we can continue this conversation. 99% of the people that call me never call me back because they could never, they never thought about in the conversation how it was going to be of mutual benefit. They all thought about what was in it for them. And all they needed to do was add junior to the mix to make it work. Cut them all out. And that's when I kind of buried myself into doing more hard work and stuff because you're going, I, I can't be at Parker Senior. I can't do this game that he had to deal with with some of these these people in the, in the community. So I, I got my black belt, and then I went into um, doing seminars because people started asking me, and they're going, why don't you teach some seminars? And I'm like, I've never done seminars, but I'll, I'll try, you know. And, and so I got invited, uh, I think, to do a tour in Florida was my first thing. And uh, it caught on, and, and for I don't know, 15 years, maybe no, about 20 years, 20 years, I traveled around the world. I taught seminars, and I had no idea that what I taught people didn't know already. I assumed everybody knew what I knew, yep. and then I realized that very unique skill set and a very unique set of knowledge. And I, I had my own interest too. I, I don't think anybody, like you know, when you become a black belt, I think it's like you becoming a doctor. But what do you focus on? As a doctor, do you want to do endoscopy? Do you do brain surgery? Do you do, um, you know, gastrointestinal work? Well, what is your specialty as a doctor? You know, and so as a black belt, I chose a whole different field to go interest in. And that was, I'm like, well, if aggressive self-defense is covered, what about a passive alternative? What about drunk Uncle Bob? You know, I mean, I know how to take care of somebody deadly wise. Mm-hmm. I know how to defend myself where I can leave the person without a pulse. But what about, you know, me walking away with the Miyagi lifestyle, you know, where I can move a finger and twist a, a wrist and that person's on the ground passed out or, or bewildered and say, I don't want to fight anymore. How can you perfect that side? And so I spent 30 years perfecting that. And I left martial arts to pursue another form of self-defense I call actual arts. And actual arts, it, it doesn't mean I'll never not be a martial artist or I won't use martial arts. But it has to do with my, my focus, which is, you know, when you look at self-defense, when I grew up, it was 99% male adults, 1% female, and no kids. I mean, I was like one of the only kids in the karate school for 10 years. And then besides my sisters or an occasional kid here or there, but for the most part, it was never kids. And then all of a sudden, when Bruce Lee came on the film um, screen, it changed from being 99% male adults to 70% boys and girls. And none of the material was adjusted for the kids. It was all battling war material that people thought would be cute to teach kids. And so if here, they're teaching kids sword and hammer, chop a guy in the throat, then hit him in the testicles, kill the guy, and then maim the guy, maim the guy's corpse. And so, and, and of course, everybody's all looking at it like, oh, cute, yeah, look at that, oh, this is great. And they take things that are considered felonies, like, noon chucks and throwing stars and making them foam and, and made out of plastic and oh isn't that cute my little kid is all dressed up in a ninja costume and i'm like you do know that ninjas were assassins right <laughs> i mean it's like i have no idea why it went in the direction it went but i started getting really bothered by the progression of where it went in the industry where i'd see people talk about business and martial arts and they're saying Man, you know, we're able to crack the nut of a five-year-old, getting a five-year-old in the karate studio. But how do we crack the nut for a four-year-old or a three-year-old or a two-year-old? And my mind thinking, what is wrong with you guys? Why are you thinking this way? I mean, seriously, 
Are you want to give the responsibility of a life or death situation to a two year old? That's crazy. I mean, literally, what is wrong with you? And I brought that up at a big thing. You know, there was a big martial arts convention. I brought that up. Oh man, I, I was I was shocked. I was not tarred and feathered for that. <laughs> it was shame on you, Parker. But you know, when you believe in what you believe in, you're going to stand tall no matter what the, the group thinks. Right. And so I, I do. I believe in what I believe in, and I believe I'm doing the right thing. And I'm not anti, but I'm all but I'm the kind of guy that says, don't ever teach killing without teaching healing. I like that. We teach people how to kill, but we don't teach people how to heal. Why? You just there's you cannot just glorify the day and not the night. You cannot glorify the night without the day. You can't. You have to. There's a coin has two sides, and I didn't understand that there's a there's an opposite for everything in the universe except for when I answer the question. You know what is the opposite of war? Peace. Okay. What's the opposite of martial arts? Nobody I ever asked had an answer. Nobody did. I said, you know why? Because we didn't take the time to invent it. We never invented the opposite side. If you look at the foundation of it, martial arts came from the word or from from the term, the arts of Mars. Mars is the Roman god of war. Small g, he was a he was a human that loved blood, loved killing, loved the, the demise of man. And that's what martial arts was named after. The guy loved blood. He was, he was like Vlad the Impaler. He was, he was just a very bloodthirsty person. And that's what martial arts was named after. And so I'm going, well, let's, let's just look at the, the opposite. Well, if the Roman god of war was Mars, who's the Roman god of peace? Her name was Pax. And so all I did was they took M-A-R for martial and put P-A-X in front of it. And okay. I created my own word, Paxial Arts, P-A-X-T-I-A-L. And it isn't, it isn't a counter to, to martial arts. To me, it's the coin, the whole coin. Learn both sides of the coin. If I have to, if I have to take a person's life because they're threatening my family, I'll use my martial side. But if I'm with an idiot who doesn't know any better and he needs to be saved from his own ignorance, I have that power too. And so that was my path and has been for a number of years. How has that so been that's, accepted? That's, uh, oh, my martial artists. How have other martial artists accepted, you know, the factual arts, or just in general, how have people accepted it? It's kind of interesting. It's been an interesting journey because when somebody doesn't believe that it's broken, nobody believes it needs to be fixed. And so you've got a whole industry that believes that there's nothing wrong with martial arts. And there isn't. But they, don't, they can't even comprehend that there's an opposite science. And so you're starting from less than a neutral position. I mean, it's like you're trying to explain red to a blind man. It's really difficult. I'd have to say maybe 10% of martial artists that I run into get it. But if you talk to non-martial artists, I, I get it across the board. I, was, I had a luxury of meeting, um, he was the, the commander-in-chief of the um, 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 American Vets and Vets. Okay. Uh, so I, I met the commander-in-chief in San Francisco, and I gave him a three-hour lesson on it. And he just dropped it and goes, oh, my gosh, do you know what you did? I said, what? He says, you figured out how to turn the war switch off. He says, I get soldiers in the Army, and we turn the war switch on, and they come back from war, and we never learned how to turn that switch off. He says, you figured out the switch. He goes, I want to sponsor you. I want to put you in every state across the United States going on a big tour, 
and teach all my my returning soldiers because I, not only do I want every soldier that's been on my watch to learn this, but I want my children, my grandchildren, and my great grandchildren to learn this. Wow! And my my biggest problem I was I was um, I, I got ripped off by a couple of people in my business and I went bankrupt, and so everything in my life fell apart. My marriage fell apart. Everything was you know it was just a bad timing for all that to hit at the same time, and so. It, it didn't happen. I, I wasn't able to take um, that experience. But the other thing I knew at the time was I've taught the system to a lot of people, uh, probably a thousand people in my career, and they love it. I've never had anybody take the course that didn't see the value in it. But the problem is, is that you have to have it documented into writing. And so since then, I've remarried. Um, I, I hooked up with my, um, my uh, childhood sweetheart from my high school years. And, you know, it just we, we're an absolute team. She's an educator. And we've spent a past number of years writing a curriculum based on this. Oh, wow. She's, she writes curriculums and stuff. And so we introduced this to the uh, Rotary Club. They went nuts over this because their theme is talking about conflict resolution. And they're saying this is the one thing that fits us perfectly. And. The one thing about martial arts, the, the number one perfect individual to teach you is a martial artist. The number one person that's the most difficult to teach is a martial artist. Mm-hmm. If they get it, this is great. If they don't get it, uh-uh. and so it, it's a very small window. But to me, my goal is with my wife is we have a nine book curriculum that we've been working on. It's extensive because of being a writer. Well, my wife's more of a writer than I am, but I, I write the base material. She she uh, runs it through, you know, a bunch of scientific background stuff, does a lot of research we both do. And then um, I do the illustrations and stuff. And we've been writing this nine-book curriculum because you can teach people to your blue in the face. And then I come back a year later and they're teaching it completely differently because it's like, you know, they're reinterpreting what they think they heard a year before. Right. And it takes a different tangent. So the only way you can do it is you have to anger people in a written curriculum. And so that's what we're doing. But, you know, it's, it's so new for people that I've taken the time to stop. And, of course, COVID kind of screwed things up, too, because we had we had this huge training. It was actually hitting hard, and we're getting sponsored by the Rotary Club. And, you know, COVID stopped everything cold. So it, it just allowed us to stay, you know, hunkered down and, and write the curriculum and stuff. And so I would have to say that's our, um, what is it, our opus. Okay. Uh, my final opus is, is uh, this, this series. And, and to me, it's like I'm not worried about numbers or, or money or anything like that. I'm worried about dying and not completing it. And so that's, that's my goal. Nice. Well, if you ever ever bring it to the Midwest, anything I can do to help, let me know. Because definitely a fun one to sit through the the seminar on that and some of the trainings will be kind of fun. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I understand how the martial artists think, and so I know how to teach the class. I mean, all you do is you say, "This is how I was taught to handle a confrontation. If the person is surly and needs, you know, and needs to be stopped, boom." And I'm like, "This is the same attack, but this is how I handle the attack from a practical perspective." And it was an interesting thing because I, you know, I had this one guy that came into my one of my trainings in um, Las Vegas, and he came in there and he just got out of the Marines, and he was, you know, he was an MMA guy, and he goes, "Oh, I heard about your Mamby Pamby Pack Shalarts thing. 
I guarantee you, you you'll never be able to take me on. You'll never beat me. Huh. And he goes, come on. And he's in his rash guard. He's in the middle of the mat. I'm like, look. <laughs> At the time, I'm like, look, I'm in my 50s. You're in your mid-20s. You came out of your mother lifting weights. <laughs> <laughs> so I might have missed a few days of exercise. You're going to win if I play your fight. I said, if you want to know how I fight, attack me where I'm at. I'm leaning against the wall. You come to me. What? <laughs> I said, if I go and get in my guard stance, I said, you'll be quick and you'll get me some pretzel move and I'll be all tapping out. And you'll say, see, my stuff doesn't work. I said, but you don't understand. That's me playing your fight. You want to play my fight, you attack me where I'm at. And so he goes, okay. And he comes running over there. And I call it the fifth stair syndrome. You know when you go up a flight of stairs mm-hmm. and you think there's four, I mean, you think there's five steps, but there's only four. <laughs> yep. And the whole body throws off in, in, in uh, movement and, and alignment and body you know, weight and everything else. You get all fumbled because you actually, your mind is geared for a fifth step. The same thing is, is this guy was expecting to be able to walk right into me and, and take me on. And as he was walking towards me, I just put my foot out the last second where his knee would be. So it made him short step. As soon as he short stepped, I dropped my calf to his calf and I moved him about three inches. But I do it with the most soft, gentle move you can. Because when that happens, a person doesn't give you credit for interacting with them. If it's aggressive, they give you credit. Mm-hmm. If it's not aggressive, they don't give you credit for anything. And so what you do is you start moving body parts two, three inches, but you're doing it quickly. You use a knee, a hip, a rib, an elbow, a forearm, a head, a neck, you know, body parts continuously. You're moving all over them. But most people are used to having you use nothing but hands. But I'm using all my body parts. And I and next thing you know, he's on the ground. But you assist the fall, too. When a person falls on their own, they get nervous and scared and they come up thinking that you made them fall. But if you assist the fall, they get disoriented. So next thing you know, he's on the ground. And he goes, whoa, I just slipped and fell. That doesn't happen. <laughs> Come on, let's do it again. I said, no, slip and fall. I put you there. No, you didn't. And so I said, all right, back me again. So I did it. And four times later, he says, I don't want to do this anymore. I said, why? <laughs> he goes, I, I'm all thumbs, man. No matter what I do, I keep slipping and falling. And I said, that's Pat Schwartz. I said, if I was aggressive to you, you would match my aggression. You try to top my aggression. It's always like if I hit you, you got to hit me back 10 times harder because, you know, that's just the law of the fight. The fight is it's always tenfold on top of whatever you get. And so if the thing is, is if you give me no credit for interacting with you, you blame 100% on yourself. That's great. So, whoa. There's, oh, no. I said, did you notice the first time I made you face south and west and north and east? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because I put you there. And I said, but I put you there in the most gentle way possible so that you don't give yourself credit for your clump. You give yourself credit for the clumsiness instead of giving me credit for manipulating you. And I said, and then all of a sudden now you have no desire to fight me, do you? No. I said, that's actual. I'm just trying to defuse you. It's not just movement. It's also psychological manipulation. It's how do I make you feel clumsy for your movements instead of angry for my reaction? That's great. You're obviously so, onto something. So. Yeah, it's, it's been really good. I mean, I've had a number of people that have, you know, sought to make up. We live in the middle of nowhere. And so because we do, you know, we, we have 
it's not easy to get to my place. So when people get there, I'm like, oh, well, if you made this kind of trek, you deserve my time. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, I'm getting good training and stuff like that. But now, 100% of what we're focusing on, especially with this stupid COVID thing going on. So at this point, I, I do artwork and I do quite a number of pieces. I think I got about 10 canvas portraits on my, my table right now for different martial artists. And then uh, on my spare time, my wife and I, we spend writing these, these curriculum, and that's, that's what we're working on. Holy smokes, boy, you got a talker on your show, didn't you? <laughs> well, that's good, though. It makes my job easier. <laughs> yeah, you can pick and choose and edit. Oh, yeah. You just op- you open up a can of worms with me because I definitely have a lot to say. So. Oh, well, honestly, I could talk to you for hours if you, if you had the time, but I, I don't want to take up all your time. But uh, I do have a fun, uh, a few fun questions to wrap things up. But I, before I start that, one question I wanted to ask uh, that I had written down here. <clears throat> I know you, earlier you had mentioned Larry Tatum. And I, I know one thing you and Larry have in common, obviously beyond Kempo and everything else, but is um, – both you and Larry got to portray your father in a movie, which, which is pretty cool. And just talk a little bit about, you know, the dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Was that something that did they come to you right away for that? Is that something you really wanted to do? It's kind of a little bit about that experience and, and playing your dad on screen. How cool that must, must've been. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the questions. Good question. I didn't pursue anything like that. I'm, I'm a relatively shy person on a certain level. I mean, once you get me talking, obviously I'm not shy, but I'm not the kind of guy that goes and says, "Hi, uh, uh, here's my, uh, you know, here's my resume for acting, and uh, you want to hire me?" I'm not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not me. To me, if you want me, you come approach me. If you don't, then I don't have to worry about being rejected. So um, I never pursued any of that kind of stuff. But what happened was, my dad had a black belt by the name of uh, Adrian Marshall. And Adrian Marshall was a, what do you call it, uh, immigration attorney. So immigration attorney by day, Templeist at night. And so he got his black belt under my dad, and my dad said, hey, I got this, uh, this one kid that I'm really fascinated by. His name is Bruce Lee. And I was wondering, could you help him get his family in the United States? And so Adrian Marshall got Bruce Lee's family, you know, immigration papers or whatever it took to get get him into the country. And so Adrian Marshall gives me a call on the phone and he says, Edmund, it's Adrian Marshall. I said, hey, I haven't talked to you in a long time. I, I knew him through him just calling my dad and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm the guy that answered the phone in my dad's office. So, so you know, you get to know the people while waiting. If my dad's in a lesson teaching somebody or whatever, so you, you do chats with people. I got to know Adrian Marshall through that. And so I was all like, oh, yeah, um, you know, and he turned out to be the Bruce Lee attorney, uh, the estate's attorney and stuff. And so he goes, hey, um, Universal Pictures is doing um, uh, a picture on Bruce Lee. Now, it's like Warner Brothers had the right to do the Bruce Lee movie, mm-hmm. but nobody submitted a script that anybody was comfortable with. Nobody likes the karate story. Karate stories don't work. It's always a revenge plot. It's only right. 12 scripts in Hollywood, and the revenge plot's like, there's like two martial arts scripts, <laughs> the revenge plot for the comic relief angle. Right. Yep. And so they're going, you know, Hollywood thinks differently. They think in terms of, you know, what kind of audience they can get. And if they went for a completely, you know, hardcore Bruce Lee script, you know, doing the life of Bruce Lee, they get a dominantly male industry and they didn't want that. They wanted to have it more diversified. So when Warner Brothers didn't um, come up with the right script to satisfy, you know, the investors or whatever, 
he got released to Universal, and Universal came from a different angle saying, let's do the romantic script. You know? so, <laughs> so they came from the angle of, you know, a Chinese man in a white world in tension, race, racial tension-filled 60s. And so they came from that angle. And so when they introduced the script from that angle, it hit. And so they're going, wow, we're going to put together a budget. We're going to put together, you know, a, a top director and everything else. And so Adrian Marshall calls me a call and goes, are you interested? And I'm all like, well, what do I got to do? I'm, you know, I'm not the greatest tempo guy, you know, it wasn't my thing. He's all, no, no, no. You just have to, you know, reenact the scene from the sixties or whatever. I'm like, sure. And so I went down there and they had me read and I went into the universal lot and, you know, sat down in this boardroom where they had all these, you know, big cheeses there, you know, like, you know, read this script and speak this way. And, and I did, and I'm going, great, you're in. And so, <laughs> wow. and so it was really cool because we were supposed to do it in Hong Kong. They were going to reenact the whole scene uh, in Hong Kong and play that it was in America, but it was in Hong Kong that we were filming it because I told them there was like 10,000 people in this arena and oh yeah yeah we'll do it in hong kong and we'll do all this stuff and they're planning all this stuff and i was all excited because i'm going whoa my big trip to hollywood and i get to fly first class to hong kong and i was all excited and then all of a sudden they had a, a hurricane go through and they wiped out the set and they got you know it wiped out their budget and everything else and all of a sudden they're going okay we were going to do it in hong kong but we're now going to do it in glendale which is the city right next to pasadena where i live <laughs> It was like a 10-minute drive from my house. And they're like, we're going to do it in the YMCA. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's like stinky. Are you kidding? Oh, this sucks. <laughs> and so this whole thing was reenacted with that. And then, of course, the, the scene itself was fictitious. It, it didn't happen that way. Right. And, and and that's when you learn about Hollywood. It's not about telling the truth. It's about, they, they call it creative license. So it, that's the angle they're trying to come from this. Uh, we like to do creative license and, uh, you know, it's not really the, the, you know, it's the story that you're trying to tell and the theme that you're trying to drive versus using the truth, you know? So I'm like, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. I didn't like it, but, you know, because you're going, that's not how it went down. But And then, um, you know, it, when I when I did the role, it was great because then you go, you're like, the only the only person I would have ever liked to have played in my entire life was my hero, which was my dad. So I played him. And so after that, where do you go? You don't want to act again. Right. You hit the peak. And so I, I was fine with that. I said, you know, the, I was in a major motion picture with a major motion picture studio with a major budget. And, you know, they had me at the, the you know, the Grauman's Chinese or the man's Chinese theater in Hollywood and, you know, the whole hoopla, the red carpet and everything else. I was part of the whole business. And it was really cool. And I was really proud to play the part. And it was, you know, there was a lot of people who popped out of the woodwork and they gave Bruce Lee a star and they had me there during the star ceremony. So I got to participate in what most people see from the outside, but I was smack in the middle of it. And I thought it was really cool and I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I, I didn't see a reason to pursue that any further, mm -hmm. you know, and I went back to doing artwork and seminars. I, I, did i don't know maybe 1500 seminars all over the world and uh most of it was about getting to know my dad from from his travel so i tried to go everywhere my dad went and learn from the people what he was like it was like it's like extracting the missing years you know my dad was gone the road a lot and so 
I wanted to know where he went, what he taught, you know, what he experienced. And I got to do all that and it was great. And then I reached my limit and then I said, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I can't, I can't, you know, I can't give any more to the community and I can't take anything else from the community. And so, you know, the only thing I I would do is uh, certificates and, and portraits and stuff. And I still do that now, but then I retired and I said, you know what, uh, my, you know, I spent the first 50 years supporting my dad. The way I look at it is my, the last 50 years of mine. So nice. that's, that's where that went. Okay. Well, the, these last few questions, and now normally when I ask my guests, it's, it's a little different than asking you. So I might have to put some stipulations. So the first one is usually I ask them if they have a favorite martial arts book, but for you, I kind of want to know if there's, if you have a favorite one that you weren't involved in, obviously you've been involved in either, you know, writing or doing illustrations for a ton of books involved with martial arts. Do you have a favorite one that you've just, that you've read that you really enjoy? The Art of War. Nice. That's a great book. Brilliant book. It's a brilliant book. I, I didn't have um, a passion for martial arts. I had a passion for my dad. So my whole journey about martial arts was trying to get to know my dad. I, I, I enjoyed his writing. But the one thing I didn't like about martial arts books is their study books. I wanted to read a book. I wanted to get enveloped in the story of a book or, you know, or, you know, it's like I didn't want to pick up a book and then you go you know, one paragraph and you stand on the floor and then start practicing moves to understand what they're talking about. I, I didn't, I didn't want to go into that. And so, um, I, I've been more of a, uh, you know, a person who likes to uh, read more cultural understandings of things, okay. historical books like that. So any of the martial arts books I've read has been more interested in the history. I'm, I love history. I love being a historian. I love understanding what was the cultural struggles at the time? What are the, the thought process at the time? I really uh, enjoy other arts too, Qigong, um, Sistema. I really enjoy looking at how people problem solve differently. And so influenced by a lot of stuff, I can't say that martial arts has been my uh, library of choice though. Okay, good. And a final question, it'll either one or two, depending on, on how you answer and, and possibly you don't have an answer. Some people haven't, but do you have a favorite martial arts TV show and or movie? It, like maybe a guilty pleasure. If you see it on, you'll watch it. If something like that. Oh yeah. Shoot. You know, uh, what was it? Kung Fu Hustle. <laughs> nice. Absolutely love it. Awesome. Hysterical. I mean, because it, it really goes into the cheekiness of martial arts, you know, when, when you're talking about the martial arts masters and stuff like that. I love humorous stuff because, like I said, I'm not a big fan of a martial arts script that's a, a revenge plot. Mm -hmm. The revenge plot is the bad guy has to be so bad that the good guy is justifying and killing. Right. You know, no killing is good. I mean, you know, if you have to, you have to. But I, I've, I've lived with people that have killed and they act all badass and see the, the lights are off and they're, they're tormented by having to know that for the rest of their lives, they took a, a person's life, including my dad. Mm -hmm. My dad, I witnessed that firsthand from him where I was up in um, Provo, Utah, where he first opened up his first commercial school. And we were doing a documentary film and that was the year he died. And so that film was never finished. But we were outside filming just some, you know, B-roll of the established shots of, of the building that he was at. And we had, like, this old equipment that was, like, monstrously big. It, it was just SVHS at the time. But it looked like, you know, that we're using 35-millimeter cameras, and it just looked so 
bulky and, and huge and professional and it was embarrassing. You know, I mean, now you can use, use an iPhone and get away with it. But at the time, it was like a big production. So we set up this whole thing across the street and this guy comes bolstering out of his, his body shop going, do you guys have a permit to fill? Oh my gosh, is that you, Ed Parker? <laughs> so this guy comes out ready to fight and asks for permission. You know, where do you have permission? You have permits to film in front of my place. And, and they all say, oh my gosh, is that you, Ed Parker? And, and all he, all, you know, you hear this flurry of, of you know, kudos and hugs. And, and then all of a sudden I, I, I hear out of this moment where, where this guy's all like, you know, Ed, remember that time we, you got that fight where, you're in the car coming from Salt Lake. You were teaching the state police in Salt Lake, and you're on your way back to Provo. And we, we got pulled over by the Lehigh Sugar Mill or, or the Flower Mill. That's where they did the original Footloose movie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he got pulled over there by these road pirates at the time. And what they do is they pull you off and beat you up and steal your money, your car or whatever. And they picked my dad at this one time. <laughs> and so my mom, this guy, and my dad were in the car. Now, I've heard this story a ton of times from my dad's perspective, depending upon who his audience was. So when he would tell like his students, he would go more on the technical stuff. He goes, oh yeah, so I, I noticed that I had to pull up a head with a light with that, and I wanted to make sure that the light was to my back. And, you know, so you hear all this technical talk in the way he described the fight. And he's all like, yeah, these guys came out of the car, and I thought, go after the guy with the, the brightest shirt. So the white guy comes out, he's uh, the passenger in the front seat, and he comes out of the car, and I came down with a looping hammer fist to his nose, busted his nose open, blood went all over his white shirt, <laughs> scared the crap out of everybody else. So, you know, it was my dad talking in, in the way of storytelling. And it was very, very methodical in the way he did it. Then all of a sudden, I heard him say that to people that were his, you know, like a Kaji Kembo guy, guys that he grew up with, not his students. And he goes, oh, the bugger came after me. Oh, blasted him in the nose. You know, it was, the, the story changed from being technical to being more, you know, the good old boys talking about a fight. And I heard it from so many different angles. And I heard my dad speak to people in church about this. So I had to neutralize this person because he had a surly attitude. <laughs> you just mm-hmm. hear the, the different versions of the story. And then I heard my mom's version. It was horrible. Your father got out of the car, and these guys came after him. And your father hit this guy so hard that his body just went stiff, and he fell straight to the ground. And for the rest of my life, I can never get that sound of a skull bashing the pavement out of my head. And it's so funny because you hear my mom, you know, talking from from uh, another perspective. And then come to find out. The other person that was in this car that I never heard his version, I never knew who it was, was this guy who owned a body shop outside where we were filming. And then he told his side of story. So, yeah, I remember those darn road pirates that came down here and you had to take them out. And I was going, hey, I was going to go help. You need help, Ed? And he goes, man, I got it. And and then uh, you, then you went out there, Ed, and you took care of him and everything else. He goes, you know, the funniest thing, about six months later, my sister goes to some social function, some dance, and this guy comes up to her, and he had no cartilage in his nose, just this flop of skin. And then my sister says, oh, what happened to you? He goes, ah, I tried to beat up this Indian guy, this Native American Indian guy with a white cowlick, and uh, shouldn't have done it. I deserve what I got, but he busted my nose open. But what I noticed for the first time in my life was the look on my dad's face because for the his whole life from that moment forward, 
he thought he killed the guy. Oh, wow. And so I saw the look on his face of relief, knowing he didn't kill the guy. He lived with guilt. I mean, you, you bury it. You say, yeah, 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 it's me at a highway them. You know, it's going to be me. You know, everybody talks tough, but you don't know the long-term effects on what it's like for a person who has to believe they might have killed somebody. I know my dad did kill somebody in uh, the Coast Guard. There was a big thing that happened, and he, and he took a guy out. It was a life-or-death situation. But I know that he was able to handle that one. But this one bothered him. Wow. And so, you know, when you, when you see that look, that was the greatest lesson I ever learned from my dad. I saw this look of relief just wash over his face. And I saw a man who buried something for 40 years deep inside his psyche come out. And it was, it was brilliant. I loved it. I mean, I was really appreciative of that. And that's what started me on my path. Okay. One, one final question, just since you kind of brought it up, you said you were filming a documentary. Now, is that footage still around? Do you think it'll ever see the light of day? No, I don't think it ever will. Okay. Um, my family, we fell apart after my dad died. My, um, my family is, is uh, there were five women and, and one male. And not to point out names or anything like that, but there was a line drawn in half, males on one side and females on the other. And the females completely blocked out the male out of everything, all inheritance, all rights, all everything. The day after my dad died, I was kicked out of the family. And so three years later, it's been the same way. And so all that footage was in their hands. And I, I know they've lost it since then. But uh, no, I'm not allowed to have anything. I'll, I, I've been sued a number of times. I, I don't. I mean, I get why people do what they do because mm-hmm. they everybody believes they're doing the right thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. I don't think in perspective they would feel that way in the long run. But at the time, I know they believed that what they were doing was the right thing. To my death, I, I'll never believe that what they were doing the right thing. But, you know, I mean, we all are that way, right? We all right. believe that what we do is the right way. And the female side of the family, the way they looked at it was, you traditionalize Ed Parker, never progressive. And I'm like, well, Dad was a progressive. <laughs> you can't traditionalize a progressive. And so I went to the route of progressive, and they went to the route of traditional. But they were also not involved in the family business until they died. Okay. So, you know, it's it's been that way ever since. I, I'm, I consider myself an orphan. So... I, when my dad died, that's when my family died. And I mean, for better or for worse, I mean, I don't, I don't have any hatred or anything, but you know, you just, you can't exist in, in you know, it's, it's, it's a, for a Star Trek term, it's a Kobayashi Maru. It's a no-win scenario. Yeah. I don't know if you nice. follow any Star Trek. Oh yeah, I got Star that. Trek. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it's a Kobayashi Maru. It's a no-win scenario. And when you know that there's no way to play, the way to win the game, you can't play it. So you leave. And so I did. Okay. Well, sir, I just, I just want to thank you for taking the time and hopefully I didn't take too much of your time. I mean, I, I, I seriously, it's been a complete honor and I really enjoyed this. And I mean, it's been, I, I honestly don't remember what, what year when I was out there and we, and we, we first met and talked it was I remember, a long time yeah, ago. I was, you know, I try to remember, you know, where we met and stuff like that. But then when you told me that, you know, at the beginning, <laughs> when you brought up how we first met and you know, when you came over to my house and, and you, um, you know, you sat on my porch and I'm like, Oh, I know who you are. <laughs> well, it's like, I've, I've only been in California three times since I moved since I left California when I lived there. So it, it was either in 2005 or 2012. <laughs> 
I can narrow it on the, those last two times I've been out there for a long visit. I'm trying to remember when the book, The Journey, came out, because that's the book I had you sign. Yeah, right. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's, um, you know, depending. So it was one of those years. I can't remember if it was the time I brought my whole family or the time I, me and my wife went on a cruise for our anniversary. It was one of those times we went out there and, and was able to come do that. But I, like I said, I truly appreciated that. And I, I appreciate your time today. And if you have any you know, last minute words you want to throw out or anything like that, and definitely any links you want me to include in the show notes for your website, for your art, for Paxtral Arts, anything you want me to include out there, I will gladly do that for you. Yeah, Paxtral Arts, P-A-X-T-I-A-L, arts.com. People are more than welcome to go and look at that and see what it's about and just satisfy the curiosity. It, it, is, it is a work in progress, but I think it's got a good foundation. It's designed to grow. So a lot of people feel that, you know, because you discover something, you discover the complete, you know, system. And right. to me, I, I created the foundation that can grow. And so it, it takes the collective minds of those who get it to make it grow, but they have to grow from a good foundation. So that's, that's you know, what I'm involved with there. The other one is my wife, her name is Bear, B-A-E-R, not B-E-A-R. So, so her name is Bear. And so our website is Ed and A N D Bear B A E R ParkerArt.com. And she's a great photographer and, and, and you can go on our website, you'll see all my artwork and some of the work I've done. I I might have ten percent of maybe less than that, maybe two percent of what I've done in my life on the site. But just a number of pieces. So if people are curious about my artwork, it's a good place to look at it. My wife, she's a very talented uh, photographer, and she likes to take pictures uh, of the wildlife and stuff like that in our area. So edinburghparkerart.com is another way. Okay. And um, in closing, I think you've been a great host. I, I really applaud your format and what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, martial arts is a is an interesting animal. <laughs> Well, yes. whatever, whatever reason why we're in it, we're in it for life. And even though I, I've retired from teaching martial arts, I've al- I'll always be a martial artist. It's just my focus is on problem solving from a different perspective. The, the perspective I have now, martial arts is a win-lose philosophy, mm-hmm. and I'm in a win-win philosophy that I'm pursuing. And, you know, it's, it's the art of redirection instead of the art of collision. And, and it's just, that's the only difference between the two. You're just trying to leave a win-win outcome at the end. But, you know, if the person isn't ready for a win-win, then, then they, then they got to lose, you know. And there's that part of the martial artist in me that will always be there. You know, you, if I have to take you there, I'm not going to – I'll sleep like a baby at night. I, I don't want to kill anybody. Right. But if I put you in a hospital, I'll sleep like a baby because <laughs> the only reason why I put you in a hospital is because you asked for it. So, nice. But other than that, I'm not interested in, you know, pursuing more of the, the collision art at, at this point in my life. But I'll always love the martial arts industry. I'll always love doing art for the martial arts industry. And it'll it'll always be my home. But like any doctor, you know, has their own specialty. My specialty is is documenting the the industry through my art or evolving the art through through the science of redirection and the philosophy of a win-win. I love what you're doing and and anything else I can do to to help and promote it, I I will definitely do what I can, so... Well, it's a it's a pleasure being on your show. I wish you the best with your show. You have some great guests lined up, and uh, you know I'm sure you'll edit this to to fit your audience and whatever. And I'm fine with that. And, and uh, I look forward to uh, crossing paths with you again.
Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.